to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. And today I'm joined by Michaela Light. Welcome, Michaela. Hi, Meryl. Hi, everyone. It's great to have you on the show. We've connected a number of years ago in the Dynamite Circle community, and we've met in person DCVKK, and we've also been part of Ultraworking Pentathlon group together. So there's so many things that I wanted to chat about with you. But first of all, where are you calling from today? I'm in Cusco, Peru, in South America. And what's it like over there at the moment? Well, beautiful summer days, late summer, some white fluffy clouds in the air, and it's a very relaxed country, as most of Latin America is. So good food, good conversation, and none of that kind of crazy hustle that you get in some countries. <laughs> that sounds lovely. And we were chatting before we started recording about me contributing to a Dynamite Circle event on the Gold Coast this weekend. And I've run this, or it's actually one of my old business funds, Ben, organizes the event and I organize some of the social activities, but it looks like a cyclone is heading our way. So we're fingers crossed that it's not going to impact the event. So with Kayla, I'd like to start by hearing a little bit of your business backstory, a little bit about the business that you run now, but also how you got to that point. Sure. Well, I have two businesses. One is Terratech and that does custom cold fusion software development, mainly for medium-sized US companies. And then the other business I have is Intuitive Leadership Mastery, and that does business intuition training. So those are the two businesses I have. And with the first business that you mentioned, how long have you been running that? And could you give us some insights into what that business looks like in terms of team size and client base? Sure. Well, I've been running that for 30 years now. And so it's eight staff on that. It's all subcontract and virtual at this point. I have had employees and offices in the past, but stopped doing that in 2010. So partly as a result of the 2008 financial crisis, eventually kind of causing financial problems in my business. So I couldn't afford to pay all the salaries and rent, but I still had work. So I hired subcontractors and that seemed to be a better business model because when there's lots of work, I pay the money out. When there's not enough work, I don't have to pay money out. Whereas before, I had a large amount I had to pay out every month, whether there was work coming in or not. Yes, having those high fixed costs can make it difficult when project work is a bit unpredictable. And so where are most of your team based? They're all over the world. There's some in the United States, some in Mexico, some in Eastern Europe, Philippines, India, all kinds of places. <laughs> And most of your team developers, or do you have some other managers? How does that team structure work? And does it take you some time after you restructure the business after 2010 to figure out what those different roles were? No, we have people doing bookkeeping and admin and marketing, and lead generation, as well as developers. So I don't want to do everything in the business. So it neither gives me lots of joy or is a good use of my time. I'd rather hire other people who can help out and be better at doing it than I would be anyway. And so what's your role in the business and what does your day-to-day -day in that business look like? 
I'm still involved in the sales and I'm still somewhat involved in the marketing. And I'm currently involved in the project management, though in the past I have had someone who does the project management. So that's the roles and the hats I wear, as well as promoting the business by writing books or speaking at events and being clear about what the vision of the business is. I am still involved in hiring, though I do have a marketing manager who helps out with hiring in that area. Wonderful. Could you talk a little bit about your intuitive leadership business? So first of all, what does that mean? That means not just using your rational mind, but using your intuitive mind when you're making business decisions. I think we have this idea, I don't know where exactly it comes from, whether it's from school or society, that you're supposed to use your rational mind and come to a completely logical decision on things. And that misses out on all kinds of information you might get from your intuitive mind. For example, in hiring, I used to use my rational mind a lot. and I'd have a spreadsheet and I'd try and rank all the different candidates and pick the one who I thought was the best fit, which didn't always work out to be the best fit. <laughs> it sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if I listen to my gut or wherever else I'm getting my intuitive information in my body or mind, you know, I might get a clue that, oh, there's an issue here. One of the ways to access intuition is handwriting analysis. And I got help from a graphologist who does that professionally and use that when hiring. Not so much to necessarily pick who the ideal candidate is, more to spot when there were like disaster zones waiting to happen. You know, is someone going to be a drama queen or are they going to have difficulty completing projects or are they not honest and are going to steal from you? So just getting clues on that. This is really interesting. This seems quite different from probably the scientific part of your brain with that software development background. So how did you start learning about this and to get to the point that you would write a book on this topic? Well, I guess that started about 20 years ago. I had a small car accident, had some whiplash, and I got some therapy. And then they suggested, well, you've run out of the number of physiotherapy sessions you can have. We suggest you do something to look after your body and do some yoga. And then that kind of led to meditation and other spiritual learnings. And a few years ago, I did an intuitive life coach training and learned a lot of things there. And I've learned a lot of things from going to conferences and workshops, reading an enormous number of books. <laughs> but really, it comes down to practicing trusting your intuition yourself and you know, using it day to day in various things, maybe starting in a small way and then building up into bigger decisions. And so if you were doing some work with a business leader and they hadn't really activated these skills previously, how would you get them started on this path? Or what would be some examples of the kind of things that you would work on with them? Well, the easiest way to get started is to keep a decision journal where you have a spreadsheet or a little paper journal and all the decisions you take in your business, you know, you write down which candidate you hired or whether you decided to work with someone if it was sales or which software system you picked over another one. And you might write down the rational reasons you gave for that and also any intuition that you had at the same time. Maybe you had a warm, glowing feeling in your heart when you were making that decision. Or maybe you had like a pain in your stomach when you were making it and how you interpreted that. And you can keep making the decisions using your current process, whatever that is, whether it's completely rational or maybe you have some other way of making decisions. 
But then you've got a history of, well, what were the intuitive nudges you were getting? So you don't have to follow them initially if you don't want to, if you don't trust them fully yet. But you can then review back, you know, look back a month later and like, oh, I hired that person and I had a weird dream the day before where they, you know, something happened and I didn't feel good about it. And then it ends up they weren't an ideal fit in the team or whatever the issue was. So then you can see how your intuition was trying to give you messages and learn to trust it more. That's interesting. I did an interview on the Being Indus podcast a little while ago, and it was about a guy that was running a program called Peak Persona. And one of his, one of the, pro, the sections within his program was about decision-making. And he actually talked about a decision-making journal as well, but it wasn't from this intuitive approach, but it was a way of reflecting on past decisions to then evaluate your decision-making process. We often evaluate other, not decisions, but things that we do, we might evaluate our fitness performance or sleep. But I've not heard of many people actually taking the time to evaluate their decisions. So it's really interesting that you shared that. Yeah, great tool and very easy to do. And it can strengthen your intuition muscle by using it and reflecting on it. If you had some examples of where there'd been conflict between the logical brain and the intuitive brain and how you'd worked through that or how you had worked with your clients to get through that. Anything involving people is good for using intuition. I mean, you can use it with other areas too, but if you're selling to a client, are they going to be a good fit for your business? You know, you don't want to accept every client to your business. Some of them are not well behaved. <laughs> That's true. I'm sure everyone listening who has a business has had the experience of saying, yes, let's work together. And then they turn out to not be ideal in that they may be a very draining of your energy, or maybe they don't pay their bills on time, or Maybe they think they should get a Cadillac when they've paid for a Ford Pinto. Maybe they just don't respond quickly to questions. Or maybe they think that you should be on call 24-7 to them and respond immediately if they phone you in the middle of the night. <laughs> I'd, say that, I'd say there would be a number of listeners that can relate to some of these things that you're mentioning. Yeah, so... Your rational mind might have gone, ooh, I'm going to get this amount of thousands of dollars working with this client. Let's do it. And maybe your intuitive mind was, you know, in the back seat of your decision car. You've got your ego in the front seat driving along, but in the back seat, there's the quiet voice of your intuition saying, nah, I think we should make a turn here and not work with this customer. But if you have your car radio turned up loud and are playing rock music, you might not hear that voice. And many people these days are so distracted, they don't have any space in order to hear messages from their own inner mind. I'd like to dig into that a little bit. And I have two questions related to this. So one is that you've written a book about this topic. And I'm interested in the process that you went through to write that book, but also whether there was anything you needed to do in your business to create the space for you to write this book. I already had the space in my business. I don't believe in running a business where I'm working 18-hour days, maxed out. I've done that. It's bad for my health. It can lead to me feeling depressed and burned out. And I must say, switching from having an office to working virtually and traveling and changing my business model, that just opened up a lot more space. So I didn't have to create space to write the book. And then the second thing I'd say is, I think people who haven't written a book see the authors who've written and published a book on some kind of pedestal, which, you know, that's very flattering. 
but it doesn't have to take a lot of time writing a book. I mean, you know, a typical business book might be 50,000 words and it doesn't take that long, half an hour to write a thousand words. So you do half an hour a day for 50 days. That's 10 weeks of five days a week. And then you'd have a book and you can pay someone else to edit it and help with the cover. I've self-published this on Amazon. There's plenty of guides for how to do that. It's not as hard as you might think. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, if you were going to climb a local hill, if you're near hills where you live, if you get all wound up about, oh, I've got to put one foot in front of the other and, oh, I've got to tie my shoelaces just right and what if I don't have the right sun hat and you could really worry yourself not even trying to climb that hill. But if you go hiking, you just go hike. And the same with a book. If you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, you're going to end up with a book. And, you know, as I said, you can hire someone to help edit it. So even if your writing is kind of sucky, you can have someone who will turn that not so great writing into a good book. It's not as hard as people make out. Did you follow a similar process to that you must have had some kind of theme or topic that you wanted to cover. And then did you sit down every day and do that? Was it the half an hour that you allocated to yourself? I had a word count goal. I worked with a book coach slash editor. So she helped me when I got stuck to get unstuck. And to be honest, most of the places I got stuck was my own mental clutter and beliefs. What if people don't like the book? And what if it's super successful and now like everyone's criticizing me or they all want a bit of my time and I won't have any of my own time left. There are all kinds of beliefs. I must have had at least a dozen beliefs that were getting in my way of writing a book. So those are the main blocks to doing it. She helped me, said, you know, just have a spreadsheet with a daily word goal. And she suggested I started off with 500 words because that seemed less stressful. And then we bumped it up to 800 and then to 1,000. And, you know, in the spreadsheet, you could see when I get to the goal I had, which was 50,000 words, you know, I looked at how many words did other books in this category have. And I also set a definite deadline, which I made public for when the book will be published. And I back plan from that. If it's going to be published on this date, okay, then it needs to be proofread by this date. And it needs to have a cover by this date. And it needs to be edited by this date. And the editor's going to take four weeks. So I need to give them the draft this date. Now I've got this number of weeks left and I want 50,000 words. I'm going to divide it up so it will fit. I also had a beta reader group. I recruited people interested in the subject who wanted to read excerpts from the book. And not only did I share excerpts, but I shared my word count goal and other success, you know, when I had a cover done and other successes, or I asked questions of them, what cover do you think is better? Because writing a book can be lonely if you do it all on your own. So it helps to have a village, so to speak, supporting you. There's some wonderful tips in that. And I love the having the published date and working back from that. I think it would be easy to allow perfectionism to get in the way of getting finished. But if you've got deadlines along the way and broken down that work count, I think that's wonderful advice. Did you start with an outline or how did you know when you were sitting down each day what you were going to be writing about that day? Yes, I did start with an outline and I didn't go through it linearly. I kind of, what do I feel like writing? You know, do I want to write this section? today or do I want to write some other section? So I didn't force myself to go in a linear direction if it didn't feel like it made sense. Also, I did a fair amount of reuse. I had blog posts and I had podcast interviews. So I got transcripts of podcast interviews. And I had an assistant to actually look for what were good quotes I could use. And also I looked at podcasts and 
thought, are there any good ideas I could incorporate in the book and credit to the person I interviewed? So, you know, there's lots of ways to make writing a book easier. And now that you've published book number one, what's next? Will you be writing again? The book we're talking about here, What Would It Take, is my second book. I published that in January of last year. I published my third book in October of last year, and I'm working on another three books this year. Gee. Yeah, because I like doing them. And what are the three books? Are they? The third book I did was on Cold Fusion, the programming language you know my first company works with. So the fourth book will be about that. And then I have a couple of books on mathematics, which I did a master's degree and I had a thesis that I thought would be fun to turn into a book. So I found someone on Fiverr who will take handwriting because it was all done in handwritten back then. And so they typed it up and now I just need to clean it up and edit it. And there you go. There's another book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this is a nice segue when you talked about writing the Cold Fusion book around how you're doing the sales and marketing for that part of the business. You've talked about writing a book and I think you've talked about going to events. And have you found that having the book has helped in bringing in customers for that business? Absolutely. A book is like a mega business card. And because so many people have negative beliefs about writing books that they don't believe they could do it themselves, it kind of sets you apart from other business owners. So I've done cold email and cold LinkedIn where I, you know, after I've established they're interested in this particular topic and they use it in their business, I'll say, can I mail you a copy of the book? And then that seems to open the door to having a phone call and can lead to work. So definitely uh, creates credibility and trust. I find it, pardon me, it's a good technique. Just also, you know, typically when you publish a book, you do a whole promotion tour, you know, you've got an excuse to blog and tweet and post LinkedIn posts and make videos and be guests on podcasts or, you know, you've just got an endless excuse to talk about the book. And, you know, you just happen to mention this is what your business does as well, which Mm -hmm. is a lot easier. I don't know if you've ever tried to get on podcasts or do social media stuff. If it's all about you, people tend to tune out. If there's a bigger reason there, and the book I wrote was like a revolution saying, hey, this programming language, even though it's 20 years old, still can be modern and successful if it's done the right way. And here's how you can do it. So it was like a mission. And then somehow it's less about you and it's easier to promote. And it's easier for other people to promote you too, because of that. Yes. And you talked about identifying whether someone was, or they were using this programming language in their business before you would then make the approach with the book. Is that something you're doing on LinkedIn or how are you getting that information? For the particular niche we're in, that's not so easy to find. If I was starting a business again, one of the criteria I would have is how easy is it to find a list of the people who might buy your services? So we have to do a fair amount of detective work to figure that out. And also we do inbound content marketing. So the people who are attracted to our content We know that they're into that particular language. So that's another way you do it. For example, if you put a post on LinkedIn, the people who comment and like that post probably are into that topic. Yes. Easy to tell who they are and then connect with them. Thanks for liking my post. Thanks for commenting on it. And then you can proceed to whatever your next step is in your marketing sequence. 
And are there any other sales or marketing tactics that you found are working well for you in either of your businesses? Probably the most successful one I have right now is I have a assistant who researches companies, sees you know checks that they fit ideal company profile, and then researches who the CIO is, and then we reach out to them. Now, interestingly enough, sometimes the CIO then forwards us to someone else in the company who has a problem that they need help with, and that seems to get better results than coming from the bottom up. You know, getting referred down from the top down in a company, the people below generally pay attention when someone who's their boss or their boss's boss tells them to do something. Whereas what I've done in the past is try and talk to the people at the bottom and they're very happy to talk and they're easy to reach, but then they don't have access to a budget to do anything about it. So I found that to be a good way to do that. And how did you determine the ideal client criteria or break it down in a way that your assistant could then go and research that? Well, I looked at what clients we'd had and which ones you know we enjoyed working with and were successful projects. I found that when we worked with a CIO, that worked well. And it helped if it was a medium-sized business for us. If it was a small business, they just didn't have the budget to be able to effectively work with us. And if they were a large business, they often had so much bureaucracy in their purchasing process. You know, it could take six months before they were able to do anything. So that's what I found for us. I decided to focus on the United States because that's where most of our clients were from anyway. So that's the other criteria in there. Those are the two or three things. You know, she's looking for, uh, do they use this technology? Are they a medium-sized business? Are they in the United States? And then she goes to figure out who is the CIO or CTO or whatever the title is in that company for that kind of person. And when you're selling to companies who are in the United States, and you wouldn't always be in the United States, have you found it difficult to sell to medium-sized companies if you're not there face-to-face or have you got other tactics around that? I always used to believe you had to sell face-to-face when you're selling larger deals. And I think partly I've changed my mindset on that. And I think also just how people are more used to doing sales over the phone and email or, or conference calls or Zoom calls than requiring someone to be face-to-face. I mean, occasionally I do run into people who are saying, oh, can you come have a meeting? And I'm like, well, I'm traveling right now and I can do the meeting in August when I'm next in that area. (laughs) Or would you rather have a Zoom call and talk about it? But if they're like super old school and it has to be all face-to-face, it's not a good fit. Not everyone is qualified to be our customer. Mm, Love that. I wanted to finish off just by asking a little bit more about your travel. We've chatted about the fact that you're in Peru at the moment. Where's next for you? I'm going to Austin, Texas for the DC Austin conference. So, and I will be traveling for about roughly a month because I'm going to go to the DCX Mexico conference. And I'm going to a Cold Fusion conference in Washington, DC. And I'm going to a conference in California. And then there's another Cold Fusion conference in Houston, Texas in the beginning of May. And I probably will slip in there a trip to Costa Rica or some other Central American country, because although I am a U.S. citizen and I've lived in the United States for over 21 years, I don't feel strong need to stay there a lot. And I find it, you know, with all the news and stuff, it can get a little stressful. So I try and explore new countries and I haven't seen all countries in Central America. 
So I'm thinking of going to one of the ones I haven't been to for a week as well. Well, that sounds like a wonderful travel itinerary that you have planned, Michaela. And you'll have to look out for my business partner, Wayne, at DC Austin. He's going to be there too. Oh, great. I'd love to say hello to him. So great event. Yeah. I haven't been previously. I've been to DC BKK a couple of times, but haven't yet made it to Austin. Yay. Hopefully 2020. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And did you have any parting words that you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? I would recommend you listen to your intuition when you're making your next business decision and jot down what came to you. You can try using the what would it take question, which is the title of my book that helps out with using intuition in an easy way. And you can find that at intuitiveleadershipmastery.com or on amazon.com. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Michaela. Thank you. By the way, if you're a coach or consultant, we've published an in-depth guide to help you improve your financial health and cash flow this year. Check it out for free at beingninjas.com forward slash coaches. That's B-E-A-N-N-I-N-J-A-S dot com forward slash coaches. Mm-hmm.